All right, we are not in Isaiah today. So sorry if you already have your, you probably already have it open to Isaiah. If you don't, well, you got it on the screen. But we're not in Isaiah today. We're actually in the book of 1 Peter today. And there's a reason for that. So if you would, please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. If you're not exactly familiar with where that is, just turn basically to the very end of your Bible and then flip back towards the left. You'll find it pretty easy. Okay, so 1 Peter, and we're going to go to chapter 5 together. 1 Peter chapter 5. Okay, so just a, a few words on, on 1 Peter here. Peter, you know Peter. This is the Apostle Peter that we've learned so much about in the Gospels. And, and yes, this is that same Peter. And now Peter, a little bit older, is now writing to some churches that are dispersed throughout this area of Asia Minor, which, if you know where Turkey is modern day, right around this area. And so he's writing to a collection of churches rather than a, a, a particular church. church. And so uh, we always want to ask, why was this letter written? What was its intention? What did he hope to accomplish? It's a very good question to ask. And then as you look at particular places, you want to understand those particular places within its proper context. So what was Peter hoping to accomplish by writing this particular letter to these particular churches? And what he was hoping to accomplish is to bring a word of peace, hope, comfort, and theological clarity to persecution and suffering. That's what he wanted to do. The Christians were suffering. They were being persecuted, I think, maybe more than we could understand. And so he wanted to write to them to let them know, first of all, don't be surprised when these things happen to you. Understand there's a purpose behind these things. Let me tell you why these things might happen. Don't stop believing in the sovereignty of God over all things in the midst of this. How is it that we as God's people experience suffering? Shouldn't we as God's people be protected from sufferings? And so these types of things stir around in the hearts and minds of believers, and they do for us today as well, don't they? If I am God's loved, blessed, chosen child, then how could bad things happen to me in sufferings? The truths that are in here remain true for us today, and they are a word of comfort and of hope. Now, in particular, we're going to re be reading out of chapter 5, but I want to just look for a moment at chapter 4, because whether you realize it or not, chapter 4 comes before verse chapter 5. So the reason I say that is because Peter is, is writing a, in a particular frame of mind, and he didn't write chapter 5 and stop his thought. He didn't do that. The chapters came later. So this is a flow of thought. And so I just want to take us to verse 12 first. So look at chapter 4, verse 12, because it sets the precedent or the context for what we're going to read in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. So let's look at it together. So this is 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, if you're looking at it with me. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Okay. And just pause right there and say, 
I'm already encouraged by this one verse because I don't we it, it just when these things come upon us, which different things at differing levels at different phases of life come upon us out of nowhere. And so the encouragement to believers is don't be surprised. Don't be shocked as though something that shouldn't be happening is happening. Don't see it as strange, but see it as understanding that the Lord has intentions through it all. So don't be surprised when these things come upon you. But instead, here's the difficult part, instead rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings so that you may be able to rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So stop right there. You would think that if we, much of modern Christianity is about the health and prosperity and wealth and everything's going to go good for me as long as I'm God's chosen beloved child. And uh, it's what you sing about. It's what all the books are about. It's what all the conferences are about. Victory, absolute victory over everything that might trouble you. But that's not true. That is not a biblical teaching. And so what, what is being said here is actually you should rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. You would think that if this new theology was true, that Jesus Christ, as the most obedient man, although he was the God-man, that if blessings follow obedience, that Jesus Christ would not have suffered at all ever, right? Because if obedience equals no suffering, Jesus was perfectly obedient, so that should mean no suffering. Who suffered more than any man in history? Jesus Christ. And so, as we suffer, guess what? You understand your Savior better. You understand your salvation better when you suffer. You identify yourself with the one who suffered for you in your place. It's amazing. So rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings so that when that glorious day comes, you might even have more reason to rejoice in all that God would give you. This is good news. But this is not the text for this morning, so I'm going to move on. There's too much there. Verse 14. So if you're insulted then, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of God of glory, uh, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, we don't interpret that many times this way, but instead when we're insulted, we wonder and we complain and we are hurt, right? Um, insulted. Insult. I, you know, some of you know me well, some of you not so well. When I'm insulted, it crushes my soul. You didn't know that about me. So it, I, I have a fragile part of myself that if I feel insults from in any way, I want to crawl into a hole. And, uh, but what I'm reading here is reassurance for me that when you're insulted for the name of Christ, then you know that what you're standing for and what you're believing and what you know to be true and what you're passionate about is of truth and is of glory to God, then understand that you are blessed, not insulted. They may insult you, but is that really the whole point? Is what people think of you and what people do to you and what people say of you the important thing? Or is it what God thinks of you? Isn't that true? So let none of you, though, suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. 
Okay, so if you get yourself in trouble because you've killed someone intentionally, you've murdered someone, and you go to prison and you say, woe is me, why is all this suffering coming upon me because I'm in prison? That's coming upon you because you killed someone. You're not suffering as someone standing up for the truth. You're suffering as someone who did something evil, right? So what it's saying is, but let that not be true of any of you. For when you suffer, it should be suffering for godliness and not for the sake of what is evil. So, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Okay? So when suffering comes upon us, but we suffer as a believer and as standing for the truth, as they were, as many of them were at this time, remember the context, writing to these churches that are suffering, and they were suffering because they were standing up for the truth that is in the gospel. And he's saying, don't be ashamed of your sufferings. Even if they spit at you and they revile you and they throw you in prison and some of you, if you are even killed, tortured, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Never, never be ashamed of the gospel no matter what the people say about you, no matter what they do to you, no matter how they mock you. Never be ashamed of the hope that you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Four. That's a big word. It's reason. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Is any among you suffering today? Is anyone here suffering? Here is the solution. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator. He is never unfaithful. He is always faithful. Give your soul to him. He is the only source of true peace and joy and comfort in the midst of suffering. Isn't that true? For those of you who have experienced that, isn't that true? You're supposed to encourage each other in truth, you know. So when you remain silent, it's as though you don't even know. Ever experienced the peace of God in the midst of true suffering? Yes. So is this true? Yes. Would it be true even if you haven't experienced it? Okay, just so you know. If God's word said it, it is true. Some of us wonder sometimes. But for those of you who maybe have not experienced the peace of God, I'm telling you and everyone else is telling you, it is true. There is peace to be found. Okay, so we've made our way to chapter 5, which I probably ought to get to at some point. So chapter 5. He is setting a standard for a theological basis for judgment, and he's doing so, I believe, out of Ezekiel chapter 8. So just briefly turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 8, if you would. Okay, Ezekiel's one of the major prophets, so it's going to be very near the book of Isaiah. You should know where the book of Isaiah is. Go to the book of Isaiah. All right. If you've found Isaiah, just turn a little bit to the right, two books, and you'll find Ezekiel, and then find chapter 8. Of course, if you have a phone, you don't have to worry about any of that.
Okay, Ezekiel 8. Now, if you're just looking at the text uh, and skimming it with me with your eyes, you know, it's 18 verses, okay, not very long. Uh, something is happening here. Ezekiel was a prophet. He was taken. You got to fast forward from, from Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah was way before, about 100 or so years before Babylonian captivity. Okay, Ezekiel is right there at the forefront of the Babylonian captivity. In fact, Ezekiel himself was taken to Babylonian captivity, and he was there for 10 years before the temple in Jerusalem was actually destroyed. So there he is being led off by captives. He's in Babylonian captivity, and back home in Jerusalem sits the temple. It's not been destroyed yet. That's going to come in about 10 years. And so he's there. He's still being used by God as a prophet. Actually, he, he receives his prophetic call just a couple of years after being in Babylonian captivity. So he is being used by God as a prophet to talk to those people who were led into Babylonian captivity. So some of the elders get together in captivity. They go over to wherever I, uh, Ezekiel is, and Ezekiel talks to them on behalf of God and the vision that God has given him. Remember, he's a prophet. So God gives him a vision, a vision of the temple in Jerusalem. And here is what he sees, what God shows him. It's not good. Probably what the elders wanted to see, by the way, was God's presence protecting the temple, right? You remember, this is in prophetic terms. So if you were to see something, it doesn't necessarily mean it actually is taking place in, in reality in those terms, but the principle holds true for what's being shown, right? So what, what, what's happening exactly? So God, uh, in the Spirit, takes Ezekiel to Jerusalem and takes him on a tour of the temple, okay? He takes Ezekiel on a tour of the temple in a vision, and he sees four things. God showed him the image called the image of jealousy set up at the entrance of the gate. So you first get to the entrance of the temple, and what do you see? An image set up. Were they allowed to do that? Were they allowed to have images set up? Were they allowed to worship anything or anyone other than God himself? And isn't the temple of all places that you want to be holy and dedicated in worship to the Lord? But what they see at the very entrance is an idol, an image set up to worship. He says, that's the first bad thing. Let me show you another bad thing. Next thing, he takes him to another part of the temple, and he shows him something else. God showed him a gathering of elders. And you might think, well, that's a, that's a good thing. But verses 8 through, tw- eight through or, excuse me, 12 through 13 in Ezekiel 8, listen to what it says. So he said to me, son of man, that's God talking to Ezekiel, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? Each in his room of pictures, for they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said to me, and you will see even greater abominations that they commit. So what's happening here is that there's a group of elders gathered together, the elders of Israel. And they're doing shameful things in secret because they think they can hide from the Lord. And he says, I'm going to show you something else. And so and the third thing he shows them is uh, women. He takes them to another part of the temple, and there's women everywhere weeping, weeping for Tammuz, which was a god, a god of the land and prosperity of the land. And so every autumn, Tammuz would die, and the tradition would be you weep because Tammuz have died, and that is why all the produce of the land is dying. 
because the God of the produce died. And so you weep. And so why is this abominable? Because they're trusting in this God. They're weeping for Tammuz, okay? And then fourth thing, he says, uh, he takes him to another part of the temple and he says, there are men, 25 of them, standing with their backs to the temple, worshiping the sun. So there they are right at the temple and they have their backs to the temple and they're worshiping the sun. Not S-O-N, S-U-N. They're worshiping the sun. So he says, this is what's happening in the holy place in Jerusalem while you're in captivity. So what will God do? God then calls for the executioner of the city. That's chapter 9, verses 4 through 6 of Ezekiel. God calls for the executioner. And he said, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of those who sigh and groan over these abominations. And to the others, he said, pass through the city after him and strike them. Your eyes shall not spare, you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. And begin in my sanctuary. And so they began with the elders who were in the house. Because judgment begins in the house of God. For the whole city, where did judgment begin? In the house of God. And in the house of God, where did judgment begin? With the elders. So, that is why Peter says, So then I exhort the elders among you. And that's what he says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. With this in mind, the fact that judgment begins with the household of God and the fact that in the household of God, judgment begins with the elders, I want to exhort the elders who are among you. And I want to make sure that they know who elders are and what they do because judgment begins with them. So within that context, we look here, 1 Peter beginning in verse 1. So, see, it's a flow of thought, isn't it? So, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Okay, and that's our text for this morning. So, shepherd the flock of God. We're going to take this just a little bit at a time, and uh, much of it is straightforward. And the reason that we're doing this today is because it's good for us to take a time out and to understand as we are ordaining a new elder in our church, who are elders what do they do? What is their significance? Not only that, I'll use a little bit of this time to directly address Sam and understanding his charge in the presence of God and, um, and among his people, and then also a reminder to Jimmy and myself, also a reminder to the entire church about who elders are, God's intention for them, their purpose, and what they should look like, how they should operate in the life of the church. Does God have a particular plan for elders in the church? Absolutely. And so should we understand that and take it seriously? Absolutely. And so that's what the text is calling us to. So let's look at it together. First thing I want us to see is this, that elders 
according to Peter, elders bear a special weight of responsibility, and this responsibility comes with strict accountability to the Lord. Elders bear a special weight, a special weight of responsibility. And as responsibility comes, so does accountability. Isn't that true? You know that to be true. If you are set responsible for a particular task, shouldn't there be some kind of accountability? If you're not responsible for anything, you have no accountability. But if you are responsible for something, guess what? There's accountability. Elders have a particular responsibility, and they're held accountable to the highest regard to God himself. What does that look like? So he says, I exhort the elders among you. He's a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and he is one who is to partake in the glory that is to come. So why is he exhorting the elders? Because they, above all, ought to be examples of godliness. They, above all, ought to be the people setting the standard for what it looks like to worship God in an authentic, pure, truthful way. And so he says, now understand that there is judgment in the house of God. Now, just as a side note, it is true that God brings judgment on believers. However, there is no wrath for you. So the judgment will not result in God's wrath because Jesus took all that, didn't he? So we know there's no wrath. So then how does judgment come? Judgment comes in the form of discipline. Judgment comes in the form of sometimes, as the texts tell us, sickness or death. That's true. Sometimes judgment comes that way from the Lord. But what is never taken from the believer is your salvation. Never taken. Because that's, that's, that's wrath of God. But if you have faith in Christ, there is none of that for you. You don't have the wrath of God, but you may be disciplined by the Lord because judgment starts with the house of God. And if it starts with the house of God, it starts with the elders first. Because there's more responsibility, more accountability. Hebrews 13, 17 Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? They're just people just like us. True. Never think anything other than that. That's absolutely true. Flaws and everything right there. That's true. However, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Because they have a particular responsibility and accountability to the Lord for that responsibility. And it says, they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Give an account to who? To God himself for the way that they have led the people. So the way that the elders lead, the way that they lead, how they lead, the Lord holds elders accountable to that. So it says to the people, so let them do this with joy and not with groaning. You ever made your leaders groan? Do you know how to make them groan? With Gungus Moo, piles of Gungus Moo. If you don't know what Gungus Moo is, that's complaining in Greek. To complain. To complain, to complain, to complain. That's one way to make them do it with groaning and not with joy. Do you know that when decisions come and leadership is given that we will have to bear a special weight of accountability to the Lord for what we have done? Do you want to ease our burden in that? So help us to do this with joy and not with groaning because that would be of no advantage to you because now we're going to be upset and want to crawl into a hole because you've insulted me. All right? Well, that's just me. 
but not only that, this. James 3.1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Why? Because we know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Did you know that those who teach are judged with a greater strictness than those who do not teach? And so there is a great weight of burden, of accountability to the Lord, knowing that when a teaching is brought from the Word, there is accountability to the Lord. There is a strictness of judgment coming. And that is many times a great weight to bear. And that weight is placed on your elders. So as a fellow elder and a witness of these sufferings of Christ, he wants them to be encouraged to keep going, keep going. Do this for Christ's sake and understand that there is true accountability. There is true responsibility for you elders. And so he wants to exhort them, all right? To exhort literally means to call alongside. He, as a fellow elder, wants to say, come on this journey with me, and I want to show you how we should be doing this. But understand the weight that comes with it. That's the first thing. So, verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So, these elders, they are to shepherd God's flock. Shepherd God's flock. So, this is the only... It's important. If you're a note taker, if you write in your Bible, which is okay, by the way, if you write in your Bible, this, or you're taking notes, this word shepherd, of course it's a verb, right? To shepherd. This needs to be the main emphasis of your notes because it's the controlling emphasis for the entire text. It is the only imperative verb found in this section of text. So everything else falls underneath it. So when we read other things like oversee, or to do something else, not domineering. None of these are the controlling verb. To shepherd is the controlling verb, meaning that everything you do falls underneath your shepherding. Shepherd like this. That's everything that's about to happen. What does it mean to shepherd? And why are elders the ones to shepherd? There are three words in, in the Greek that are used kind of simultaneously, um, or synony- not simultaneously. They're used synonymously. Um, and th- those words are elder, presbyteros, overseer, episkopos, shepherd, uh, poimen, which is where we get our word pastor. Now, all these words are used uh, in the same context, in the same way. That's why elders are to shepherd, because they're shepherds. Elders are also to be overseers, or to oversee, because they're overseers. So all three of these, elder, overseer, shepherd, or pastor, are synonymous terms in our New Testament. So we're ordaining a new elder. Do you know what that means? That we have a new pastor. We have a new overseer. They're all the same term. You understand? So you might say, well, he's an elder, but he's not a pastor. That makes no sense. Okay? That, that terminology makes no sense. Elders are pastors. Pastors are overseers. Overseers are shepherds. Right? Because a shepherd is a pastor. It comes from the Latin word which sounds like pastor, okay? So what are they to do when they shepherd? I found this very uh, kind of intriguing, I suppose, but the terminology that Peter uses here is the terminology that was used on him by Jesus. It's in John 21, 16. Let me just read it for you. You'll hear it. 
So this is Peter talking to elders. We're now going to Jesus talking to Peter. Listen to what Jesus said to Peter. John 21, 16. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John. That's confusing. Simon is Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus said to him what? Tend my sheep, and wouldn't you know it, it's the same word translated here, shepherd. It's the exact same word. Just a translation difference. Shepherd my sheep. That's my call on you. And so then later on, Peter is saying to those others, shepherd the flock of God, shepherd his sheep. That's what he told me to do. And that's what I want you to do. That's what God would have you do, shepherd them. And so what does it mean to shepherd the sheep? We are all the sheep of God. You know that, right? How do you shepherd this? It's a challenge, right? We all want to go our own way, do our own thing, eat our own food. Just, uh, I don't want you to tell me what I'm going to eat today. I don't want you to tell me where I'm going to go today. I don't want you to, I don't want any of these restraints. Um, it's kind of the job of a shepherd. If his sheep said that to him, the shepherd would, would find a new flock. And unfortunately, in the church world, isn't that what you see happen on repeat? So, how do you shepherd the sheep? What does that mean? Uh, I have a quote here from John Calvin. I, I've, I've known this for a long time. It's, it's, uh, it's good. It's kind of famous. He said this. The pastor ought to have two voices. You've heard this quote? The pastor ought to have two voices. One for gathering the sheep. That's good. And another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The scriptures supply him with the means of doing both. What supplies him? The scripture. Isn't isn't that true? That's That's a powerful statement here. I think it's right on. It is exactly right. Because a shepherd has to do two things. You parents know. You have two voices with your children. Isn't that how it works? Because you care for them so desperately, you don't want danger, and so we do what we can. But it takes two different voices, doesn't it? So it is with sheep. You want to care for them, feed them, protect them, but then also, you don't want any harm to come their way, and so when danger comes you're going to get rid of that danger. This is the call to shepherd the flock of God. Which flock? All believers everywhere? What a task. There's only three of us. We have the whole world. Is that how it works? That doesn't even make sense, does it? What, what flock? Um, it, well, it says, doesn't it? It says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Which flock? This flock, not another. So the elders of this church are elders, pastors, overseers of this flock, not another. Acts twenty twenty eight. pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, to shepherd them. Shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. How? Shepherd them. How? He lays that out for us next in the text. First, he says, as willing and eager overseers. Look at it next with me. Shepherd the flock of God, this is verse 2, that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. 
So as the elders shepherd, they are to oversee the flock of God. How? As willing and eager overseers. What would be the opposite of that? Not under compulsion. And uh, what, what might that mean? Not under compulsion. It, it means really just not out of obligation. And we think, well, somebody's got to do it. Might as well be me, I guess. Is that different than a person having a heart for the people and he wants them more desperately than anything to know the Lord and to walk in obedience to him? Isn't that different than, well, I mean, it's my job. So somebody's got to do it. I guess we'll talk. I don't know. I guess I'll preach. That's not the kind of heart that an elder is to have. An elder is to have a heart that is willing and eager to oversee the people. That's a plain understanding of that, isn't it? But it also says, but as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And so you might say, well, okay, it's not for gain. So we're not going to pay you. And if we pay you, we're going to pay you this much because you need to know you're not in this for money. And we're going to remind you of that. So we're going to keep your pay as low as possible. Okay? I've been in scenarios kind of like that. I'm not in that scenario here. Thank you. But is that biblical? If this is not for gain, then what's it for? Well, it's not for gain. Correct. It's not for shameful gain true what is shameful gain should we be paying our elders should we not to remind them that they're not in this for money it's not for shameful gain that is it should be done eagerly that is freely without restraint you ought to be shepherding the people freely without restraint that should be your heart you're shepherding them not because you're in it to make a name for yourself you're in it for popularity you're in it so people would think you're super spiritual. Look at me. Hey, everybody, look at me. There's a light shining on me. It must mean I'm important. I have a microphone and you don't. Make sure and share this sermon on YouTube later. You know? Make sure all your friends see it. I'll quote this sermon in a book that I'm writing and publishing. Right? All for what? To lift up my name and my glory for gain. Sometimes that game comes in financial terms. That's true. Does it mean then you shouldn't pay them? No, that's actually not what it means. It actually kind of means the opposite. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And if you have an ESV, it's going to have a little number with a footnote because it's going to tell you that this means double wages. Actually, their work should be considered worth double what a normal person would get paid. That's what it means. That's, the, that's what the, the text literally means. And it says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So is it wrong for the church to pay me to be an elder of this church, knowing that a vast majority of my time is dedicated to the preaching and teaching of the word? Or is that a biblical concept? That's actually a biblical concept. Does it mean I have a right to refuse? Sure. Do I have the right to work another job as I do? Absolutely. 
should we pay our elders when they labor for that particular week in preaching and teaching? I think we should. We have decided that we should. And so whenever the other elders preach, they are compensated for that. But it's not for gain. This is not why you're doing it. It wouldn't be for much gain anyway. But it's not for that. That's not the purpose. You're freely leading and loving the people. Next. How are the shepherds to, or how are the, the elders to shepherd God's flock as humble and upright examples? And that's what it says in the text. Next. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Do you see that in verse 3? Not domineering over those in your charge. It, it literally says not lording over them. That's what it says. So all of a sudden, this power that you've given me as an overseer, I'm just, I'm running with it. You ever seen people all of a sudden get a position and it went to their head real quick? And now they think they're in charge of the whole world. And they love their power and their status. It's not about domineering over people. Elders are just people with a particular task from the Lord that he has called them to that they're going to be accountable for. Elders, in that sense, should never be held up on a pedestal because they're just like you, but they have a special responsibility from the Lord, a special task to fulfill from him that they're going to be accountable to. But in another sense, they should be looked up to as examples. And if your elders are not examples of godly living, then they're not fulfilling their task as an elder appropriately. It says, not domineering over people, that's not your job. Your job is to be an example to them. Be an example to them of what godliness looks like. This is what you're called to. Which is why when you look at the qualifications for elders, has much to do with their character, doesn't it? Now they also need to be able to teach because it also has to do with teaching. Character and teaching. They are to be examples. Okay, final thing. They are to shepherd God's flock with eyes looking eyes looking to the glory that is to come. This is very important because without this, I would have left the ministry long ago. I did at one point. I came back. Hopefully with a new perspective. The perspective that elders are to have as those to whom judgment comes first when the household of God is being judged. You have to keep your eyes on the glory of God that is to come for you. Because there is a chief shepherd. He has assigned elders a task. And when he comes and he says, how have you been shepherding? That's what your eyes need to be set on as an elder. It's very easy for our eyes, just so you know, to get set on you and what you think of us. And the way you think we're leading. And the way you, whether you liked or did not like the sermon. Right? or whether you think we should have this going on or that going on or whatever it may be, and we all of a sudden start to be people who want to please you because you're actually the people we interact with. You're the sheep. And so we hear and we want to please, and all of a sudden everything becomes about how you view what we're doing. And that becomes an incredible burden to bear, too much of a burden to bear. But the call to elders is to remember the reason you're doing this is for the glory of God because you've been given a task by the chief shepherd. He made you a shepherd. Do what your shepherd has called you to do and do it faithfully. I'm going to end here. 
Uh, yet again, I, I don't know how this happens. Casey's laughing at me already because he probably knows what I'm about to say. I, I, I did minimal notes this week, thinking uh, I'll, we'll do a little shorter this week. And that just didn't happen. I'm sorry. We actually somehow went longer. So um, not, what I, not what I intended. Uh, the text is just too good. It's too good, Sherry. It's too good. So uh, I just want to end here then with verse 8. Just look at what 1 Peter 5, 8 says. Why, why all this protection? Why all this care? Why do, why do the sheep need a shepherd if we have a shepherd? Isn't, isn't Jesus our shepherd? Isn't God the one who leads us and guides us? We are his sheep. We are of his pasture. He cares for us. So then why do we need people to do that? I'd rather have God as my shepherd than me. I agree with you. But God has structured things in such a way to as, uh, or so as to give uh, shepherds to his sheep while he is shepherding and guiding all of us. It is a means that he uses, okay? Why? Look at verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your ad- adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. That's why. Because we are all in danger. Because sin is crouching at the door. And because Satan, our adversary, wants nothing more than to devour us. So where do elders then find themselves? Between the lion and the sheep. Is it a dangerous place to be? As we consider what it is for elders to rule, to oversee, to shepherd the flock of God, I want you to know the weight that is placed from the scriptures on this office and that your elders need your prayers. They need your help. They need you to help us do this with joy and not with groaning. Because if you want to take out the flock, what should you take out first? The shepherds. And so now, there is a special sight set on Sam and on Jimmy and on myself. You want to get here? Take us out of the way. And that's a very serious thing because spiritual warfare is real. And so we need your prayers. We need your help. We need elders. This is God's model. This is all good. We need sheep who will listen and who will love one another. We need this. This is God's plan. Everyone doing their own task, working together, understanding God's design and understanding that we are human. But we have a great shepherd who is not and who does not make mistakes. We, however, will make mistakes. And we will be held accountable. But we need to pray. We need to be thankful for God, to God for him adding to our leadership because leadership is good. And uh, even though a cord of two is all right, a cord of three is hard to be broken, right? Now we have a cord of three, and I'm thankful for that. We're going to pray and, uh, and, and move on. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for its power and for teaching us, leading us, guiding us. And uh, we pray for help. We pray 
um, that you would continue to speak to us, that you would continue to use us, that you would continue to grow this church, protect us. Give us wisdom as we lead your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now uh, we're going to move on to uh, Sam's uh, ordination and, and what we do here. And uh, if you've not been part of this before, is that Sam, you can go ahead and come up. Sam is going to take uh, some vows before you as a church, as I did, as Jimmy did. And now Sam is going to come take those same vows. I guess I don't need an additional microphone, do I? So, all right. Come stand right over here, Sam, if you would. And uh, I'm going to read these vows uh, from the screen, and uh, you just respond in like terms, okay? We can look at that one. That's okay. All right. So, Sam, have you been induced, as far as you know, uh, from your own heart to accept the office of elder for the love of God, the love of his people, and a sincere desire to promote his glory in the gospel of his son? Do you sincerely believe the statement of faith and the membership covenant of this church contain the truth taught in the scriptures? Yes. And do you promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with the statement of faith or the membership covenant, you will, on your own initiative, make known to the elders the change that has taken place in your views since the assumption of this vow? And do you promise to be zealous and faithful in promoting the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise to you on that account? I do. Do you promise to submit to your fellow elders in the Lord? I do. And will you be faithful and diligent in the exercise of all your duties as elder, personal or relative, private or public, and will you endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your manner of life and to walk with exemplary piety before this congregation. I do. Yeah, that's what we just talked about, isn't it? Uh, okay, so now, uh, congregation, if you are a member of Fellowship Renewed Church, uh, if you just stand for a moment, please. And as a church, we will make vows to Sam as an elder. Um, so I'll read the vow and then you can respond. Um, do you, the congregation of Fellowship Renewed Church, acknowledge and publicly receive this man as an elder, as a gift of Christ to this church? Will you love him and pray for him and his ministry and work together with him humbly and cheerfully to fulfill the mission of Christ in the church? giving him all due honor and support in his leadership to which the Lord has called him to the glory and honor of God. Thank you for be seated. I'm going to invite Brett to come up <laughs> and join Sam. Um, you may or may not know when Sam uh, becomes an elder, that puts a responsibility on Brett also. Um, and that uh, elders' wives, they carry a lot of the load of uh, our ministry. Um, they're a great support and a great help um, to an elder, and um, we have a couple of questions for her as uh, his wife. And so, Brett, um, do you affirm the call of God on your husband to the office of elder, recognizing his desire and qualifications for this office? 
And will you faithfully support and encourage your husband as he faithfully shepherds his congregation, submitting to his authority in the home and in the church? All right, and then one more vow for Sam. Are you now willing to take personal responsibility in the life of this congregation as an elder to oversee the ministry and resources of the church and to devote yourself to prayer, the ministry of the word, and the shepherding of God's flock? All right, we're going to have a time of prayer uh, for Sam and Brett. Um, and so we want to invite you guys, if you want, to come and gather around. Eric and I will pray for him. Uh, but at this time, if you want to come and gather around Sam and Brett, we want to invite you up to do that. Come in, you can come in this way. Close it in. Close it in. There you go. That's good. That's good. That's good. All right, let's all pray together. Lord, we are grateful. God, again, that through your mercy and through your goodness, God, that you have lifted Sam in our midst to be an elder of this church. And God, we recognize that your design is good and your design is perfect. And Lord, we know that we are not. We know that there are times that we will struggle. But God, I'm grateful for Sam. I'm grateful for his willingness to take this responsibility that you've laid upon his heart, upon his life. God, to help shepherd this flock. Lord, I pray that you will give him just abundant grace as he attempts to shepherd this flock, God, that he will follow your lead. God, that he will be a good leader at home. And Lord, that uh, you will also strengthen Brett during this time. Lord, that she can be a great support to Sam. God, that she can be the wife and the mother that he needs. And God, we thank you for that. We're grateful for that. So Lord, I pray that this time is honoring to you, that Sam's commitment is honoring to you. And Lord, that you will continue to bless us here at this church as we strive to be obedient to you and to your word. And I pray that in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you so much for Sam. Thank you for Brett. Lord, I, I pray that as uh, Sam... Uh, joins us as an elder of this church, that he, first of all, feels the weight of that and that he conducts himself with this sense of fear and reverence before you, knowing that this is not his flock, but this is your flock. And so he has seen as someone to care for it, to care for your sheep. And so, God, I pray that you would help him to understand that. I pray that you would continue to give him gifts for the church, that he can be used by you to bless your church, to equip them for the work of the ministry. And Lord, I pray that you would give Sam wisdom, insight, strength. I pray that you would give him support. I pray that through his leadership, our church would grow, that you would use him to grow our church, that we might be a, a holy people, pure before you, that we are seeking to live our lives authentically, truly in devotion to you and submitting to your word. God, I pray for Sam that as he bears the weight of souls, that, Lord, you would give him an incredible emotional strength. Give him the insight that he needs in those moments when the sheep are hurting. 
Help him, Lord, we pray. I pray that you would take Sam, that you would mold him and use him and bless him in many ways. Give him endurance for this task that you've given him. We pray this together as your church in Jesus' name. Amen.